Open your Bibles, if you would, to the Gospel according to Matthew. Always makes the preacher nervous when people are laughing over in one part of the church and you don't know why. I haven't said anything yet. <laughs> Open your Bibles, Matthew chapter 22. We're going to pick up right where we left off last week. And I must say, I must say, I have never had as many people come forward as quickly as they did last week with questions about what I said. And the funny thing was, I think all of them but one said, why did you skip after verse 11? I didn't skip it. I just hadn't gotten to it yet. It's not like I went on to what was after it, but there was a lot of interest in this next section starting in verse 11, which is really, really good because it's a really, really significant portion of Scripture, and it's, if I can use this word, if we're going to have some fun this morning. I really hope, I'm going to, I hope you do too. Um, before I read the text, just a couple of words for context in case you weren't here last week or didn't listen on the, on the podcast. The section starts at verse 1. This is Matthew 22. Starts at verse 1 with Matthew saying that Jesus was speaking to them in parables. Now, in case you don't know what, the, what a parable is, I mean, one of those words we use but don't always define, it's a story, a realistic, though not necessarily historically, factually accurate account or story, because it is, it is fictional, but it teaches a truth, and it does so by paralleling life. That's where the word parable comes from. It parallels life, and so that's what Jesus is doing here, and in verse 1, uh, Matthew says Jesus would teach them in parables. That's actually, the fact that he makes that plural is significant. We'll come back to that in just, in just a few minutes, uh, and he starts, chapter 22 starts, with the story of a huge party being planned by a king who's throwing a feast for his son's wedding. And guests are invited. And if you remember or if you listened, this is a big party. We just did some rough calculations based on what it said about the number of animals that were butchered. It's going to be in the multiple hundreds and hundreds, possibly thousands. So we're not talking the basement at Evangelos. We're talking the Sullivan, okay? Big, big party, right? And we ended, we ended, and of course, oh, I should add, that all the people that were invited in the beginning wouldn't show. They had very excuses, they showed general disinterest, they didn't want to come. And so the king sent out other servants to encourage them, and what did they do? They either ignored them, or beat them up, or killed them. And the king responded by doing what? Sending out his army to kill them and burn their cities to the ground. I know, it's pretty extreme stuff. Uh, and then the king said, great, banquet's ready. We're going to fill this place up. So he sent his servants, and they brought in people from the roads. They just went out to the highways and collected a bunch of people and brought them in. And it ended with the statement that the banquet hall was filled with dinner guests. So the banquet hall is full. And that's where we pick up the text at verse 11. But the king came in to look over the dinner guests, or when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And he was speechless. That's not the king, that's the man. He was speechless. And the king said to his servants, bind him hand and foot, cast him into outer darkness. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But many are called, for many are called, but few are chosen. Father, thank you for your word. And help us, Father, as we would hear your word, receive your word, respond to it in Jesus' name. Amen. A lot of questions in this text. 
And what I'd like to do this morning is take the time to look at the text really thoroughly and then ask, well, what did it mean to the, the Jews that were there and what does, it, what does it mean to us? Although I think it's going to be pretty clear as we get through it. So first of all, uh, the text itself. Let's look at that. And we're going to do it a little bit differently. Uh, we're going to do this as a meditational exercise this morning. We've done this in the past. If it's, if it's new and different um, for you, well, let this expands your experiences a little bit. Um, I'm going to read the text, and I just want you to visualize it as carefully as you can. Now, again, if you get something that's off a little bit, it's not a problem, all right? This is an exercise we're doing. I'm going to read the text. I want you to visualize it, and I, I want you to get as much detail as you can. When the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw there was a man not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? He was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. I'm going to read it again, and this time I want you to do the same thing. Just visualize it, get as much detail as you can. But I really want you to zero in on, on the man, the guy that got in trouble, right? As much detail as you can about him. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw there a man not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? He was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Okay. That's the fun part. At least, again, at least for me. Um, what did he look like? A little input. What did it look like? And again, it's not like you're going to be wrong or we're going to correct you or anything. What did you see? Some volunteers. Yes. Who? What? Okay. I'm sure it was loud. Yeah, and that's really good to get the sound. Okay. Somebody else. Yes. Dirty clothes. Okay. All right. Somebody else. Yes. He looked different. How did he look different? I'm a stickler for details. I'm sorry. What about his clothing? You don't get off easy with me. What about his clothing was different? What? What was he wearing? Everyday stuff. Okay. All right. All right. Yes. Oh, interesting. Pride and guilt. Interesting. interesting. Anybody else? Oh. Yeah. 
And is he wear, can, you, can you give me his clothing at all? Okay, okay, that's fine. No, that's fine. It's cool. It's cool. Anybody has anything radically different about his clothing? Yes. Black? Interesting. It's interesting. It's interesting. Okay, no, no, no. That's fine. That's fine. That's fine. That's fine. That's fine. That's fine. Actually, to be honest, the first thing that came to my mind was like an Elvis impersonator in Vegas wearing all gold, you know, or something like that. Yeah, that would be inappropriate, right? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Here, here's the question. Obviously, the problem is his, his appearance, and it's 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 cut and dried because when he's confronted about it, he has no response, right? There's actually two critical issues, or two questions that are raised. The first one is, how did you get in here? Which probably more has to do with the guy working the door. Than, than this guy, right? What, what, somebody blew it somewhere. But then he says, without a wedding garment, right? How did you get here so improperly dressed? Let me ask you this question. Is the problem with what he is wearing? Is that the problem? What's the problem? Okay, that's the reason behind it. But what is the immediate present? I'm talking about the immediate presentation. We'll get to the motivation later. But the, his immediate presentation, is it with what he's wearing? Yes? He gave no response. That's part of it. But we want the immediate issue. What is the immediate issue? Is it with what he's wearing? How to get in? That, it's what he's not wearing. The issue is what he is not wearing. It, in fact, has nothing to do with what he is wearing. Now, I think I can say most of us, in our mind, this was certain, actually, I did not start with the Elvis impersonator. That was the second thing I got. Most of us, in our thinking, we see this guy as dirty or disheveled or wearing everyday clothes or wearing something really inappropriate to a wedding, especially as being thrown by a king. Where was this guy just a few minutes before or a few hours before? He was out on the highway. You walk, you go down the highway dressed for a wedding? At some big shot's kid's wedding? No. When, when, if, if we think about it for a moment, when we visualize what the... You think he was the only person that was dressed shabbily? I mean, the group at this function, at this huge wedding, when I think about what would they have looked like, my mind goes to truck stop. The kind of people you would find gathered at a truck stop or a roadside rest someplace, the full gamut of humanity, that is what is there. The text doesn't say, the king doesn't say, how did you get in here looking like something a cat just drug in? That's not the issue at all. It's not, as some have suggested, the king invites you and this is the best you got. He didn't have a chance to change. There's nothing that indicates in the first part of the text that we looked at last week. They had any chance to go home and change, right? Why didn't you at least go home and take a shower? There's no indication they even had a chance to bathe. Now, there would have been provision for ceremonial washing outside, but that's not like, you know, the full thing at all, right? 
But we have these ideas because of our assumptions or what we've heard or what we've said. Exactly what is the problem? What should this person have been wearing? Well, the text points to a, a little bit of, of it, but history, a little bit of history helps. We talked last week how important hospitality was in antiquity in the, in the Near East. It is huge, much more so than in our society, and the rules of hospitality were much more important. I mean, you, com you commit some faux pas of hospitality in our society, you're a little embarrassed. We're talking about a society you break the rules of hospitality, somebody dies. Maybe a lot of people. It gets messy quick. These rules of hospitality were extremely important. And again, what we're talking about is what's going on in the minds of, of, of the listeners. When they hear this parable, what are they thinking? What's their framework? Um, and it, I'll be honest, it took quite a bit of, of, of looking because you don't exactly find a whole lot of historical information on wedding attire for the guests in the first century. There's not a whole lot of stuff published about that. So I took a little bit of, of looking. Um, uh, what I found was there's a, a Dr. Bob Stallman, who happens to be professor of Old Testament at Northwest, where Lena and Damien are, are looking at, and he wrote quite an article on the rules of hospitality and their importance in the Near East. And he cites a British anthropologist named Julian Pitt Rivers. And the only reason I give you these names is so often in teaching or preaching, we're told where there was an old custom or an old tradition, and nobody tells you how they found it or where it came from, and you have no way of knowing if they're making it up or not, right? So this way you can at least check up on me if you want to. Julian Pitt Rivers, British anthropologist. And he wrote about hospitality in the Near East and the importance of making guests feel welcome and comfortable. That is like priority one in antiquity, this general period of time we're looking at. And um, because often the guests were people that didn't like one another or didn't know one another, and most of them came in armed. So again, you want to make sure a fight didn't break out. Uh, and one of the ways, according to Dr. Pitt Rivers, that you did this was by preventing any sense of like one-upsmanship coming into the meeting, right? We've all been in the setting, right, where some guy or gal thinks he has to come up with a better than the other person or is somewhat better or maybe is in a closer relationship with the host of the party. And, I mean, nobody likes that except the one that wins, right? It makes everybody uncomfortable. And so these rules of hospitality were woven, and it's across any number of cultures. It's not just Jewish culture. It's all the way across the Near East. And a lot of rules were in place to create this sense of equality or even sameness. Everybody sat at the table at the same level. Everybody had the same level of engagement with the host. Well, how does that work in this particular story? Again, there's not a whole lot of information you can find. Um, it does get kind of interesting. Um, we, we turn to a book that we don't normally turn to for theology, because the theology, even though it's a theological book, the theology is pretty weird. Um, it's entitled The Recognitions of Clement, and it goes back to sometime between the second century, early fourth century, and he's, it's, it's pseudographical. We, Clement did not write it. We don't know who did, and again, it's got some really weird theology in it, but the reason we're looking at it is because, again, it gives us perspective into the thinking of a second century person. 
how they saw things. And the author is talking about baptism, actually, but he makes a really interesting comment, which he doesn't have to explain, meaning his readers understood it. He took it for granted that his readers would understand that. So he's talking about the role of preachers and about baptism, and whoever writes this thing says this, he has commanded us to go forth to preach, to invite you to the supper of the heavenly king, which the father has prepared for the marriage of his son. So whatever he's writing, he's assuming his readers are familiar with this parable. That it clearly follows this parable. So the author of this work assumes that his readers understand this, this parable. And then he says this to the, his readers, that we should give you wedding garments. And then he compares that to the spotless robe, which is part of the baptismal thing. That you should enter into the supper of the king. What it tells us is that readers in the second century, fairly close to when Jesus spoke, understood a custom, which again is only alluded to by other authors, and there's other, other research that goes into this, we could go into more depth, that when somebody threw any kind of a banquet, especially somebody of wealth or position, that when the guests arrived, when they got to the door, they were handed a garment. And the word in the text is clear. It's an outer garment, follows, follows the image. They were handed an outer garment, and everybody got the same garment. Ask yourself this. If indeed this banquet had hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of people, how did the king spot the one guy that stood out? Because everybody else is dressed in a simple white art, you know, garment, and this guy is dressed in black, or he looks like Elvis or something. He looks like something else, right? The problem is not that he didn't come looking appropriate. The problem is when he got to the door, he was offered the garment and he declined it. That is what Jesus is talking about. The man came to the wedding, was offered the outer garment as everybody else was, and he declined it. Uh, David Brown, a 19th century Scottish preacher, it was the same direction in, in explaining this. You see, that outer garment did a couple things. One, it identified the guest as a guest. The room was also full of servants, right? And isn't that embarrassing that you're at some big function and you get mistaken for a waiter? It's very embarrassing. And again, you don't want to make your guests feel uncomfortable. So they're easily identified as a guest, which identifies them with the host. That's the relationship with the host. And by the way, these rules were so, so expansive that you had rules so that the host would never make the guest uncomfortable, the guest would never make the host uncomfortable, and no guest would ever make another guest uncomfortable. And that was all through equality, this idea of equality. So the first thing the robe did was identify the guest as a guest. And the second thing it did is it brought all the guests to the same level, all part of this hospitality thing. So what would cause a guest to decline the garment? He's got a problem with one of two things. He either doesn't want to be addressed, doesn't want to be associated with the king. He wants to come in for the food. Hey, I was going down the road one day and they asked me in for this huge spread. How could I resist, right? They may want the food, they may want the music, they may want the entertainment, but they don't want to be associated as a guest of that particular, I don't know the guy, I don't like the guy, I don't want to be associated with him, but I'll take his food. That's one possibility. 
insulting the host. The second possibility is that they don't want to be seen as equal with the rest of the guests. Have you seen the riffraff they brought in here? They got the scum of the earth in this place. I don't want to be seen with them. I would suggest it is far more likely the person was dressed in something very regal, very spiffy, looked really, really sharp, and did not want to be associated with what else was there. That is far more consistent with the account as it's told. Both of those reasons share this in common. They forget how the guy got through the door in the first place. How did the guy get through the door? It's because the king sent his servants out and said, grab him and bring him in. And he came through that door the same way everybody else did. And so to this one, the king says, bind him hand and foot, cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there should be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Just a couple of notes. This is not like just throwing him out, you know, like in the westerns when the doors of the, you know, bars swing open and the guy comes flying out. This is not that. This is worse. This guy is thrown to a specific place, into the outer darkness. And we've talked before that word the is a huge word in the language. It means something specific. Cast it into the outer darkness, which is then described as a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That particular phrase, the weeping and gnashing of teeth, occurs five times in the Gospels, four times in Matthews, once in Luke, and it always refers to someone who thought they were on the inside who thought they had a solid relationship, thought they were good, found out they weren't. About 45 years ago, I remember listening to Jack Hayford talk about this expression. And as Jack Hayford, when you remember a sermon for 45 years, you know it had an impact, right? Um, as, as Jack Hayford, I can tell you where I was when I heard it. Um, as Jack Hayford was talking about this, this weeping and gnashing of teeth, he described it as the involuntary physical response of somebody who thought they had it made, who thought they were good, and suddenly has realized that it's been hit. And there is an involuntary clenching of the fists and a gnashing of the teeth. How could I have been such a fool? Because the decision's been made. And then Jesus concludes with many are called, but few are chosen. It's really simple math. All of those, if you look back at verse 10, all of those originally invited never made it. By their own choice, they declined the invitation. And even among those brought in afterwards, at least one is to be found there under fraudulent pretenses. He really has nothing to do with the king or the guests or the wedding. Both of these parables speak to, and by the way, the reason it's important there is too, is when you are reading a parable, you're looking for one central truth, and there's two central truths here. That's why it's described as parables, plural, in the first verse, and there's no parable after it, so it just, this is it. It's the first parable, it's the same storyline, same storyline, but the first one speaks to the Jews, the second one speaks to us. The first one speaks to the Jews who had the invitation and turned it down. The second one speaks to us who were brought in and yet, if we're not careful, we may find ourselves so lost. Both, 
parables speak a word of caution. To the Jews who heard Jesus, the message is clear. The high priests, the political religious elite, the prideful were those who rejected the invitation. They thought they had it made, but by their very actions demonstrated that they did not. The mob, the rejected ungodly of lesser character, the hairy unwashed. There is a great story, account, excuse me, in John chapter 9, where Jesus is dealing with a man born blind. And somebody born blind drove the Jew, born with any physical infirmity, drove the Jews nuts. It did. Because they always saw sickness, infirmity, disease as an evidence of sin. Well, if somebody is 30 years old and then suddenly they drop dead, well, that's an easy one to figure. They sinned, they died, that simple. But what do you do with somebody born with an infirmity? They had been born. I mean, how, what did they do to deserve that? And one of the answers that typically was offered was, well, their parents sinned, so they got given like a blind kid. Well, that doesn't make any sense. You're going to punish the kids for what the parents did? No. And it really drove them nuts. And so this man, born blind, would have been one they didn't even want to talk to to begin with because they couldn't answer the question, suddenly shows up healed. And they bring him before the religious experts, and they say, tell us about it because this will help us to understand. And he informed them to their chagrin that Jesus had healed them which didn't help them at all. And an exchange goes back and forth between this guy and the religious experts, and then they finally kick him out, and they bring his parents in, because again, he was born blind. So how, maybe the parents factor in. And the parents, they're no help at all. They don't even want to talk about it either, because they're afraid. So they put the parents back up, bring the guy back in. And by now, the guy's getting a little bit tired of it. And he says to them, look, I've told you what I know. This is the one thing I do know. I once was blind, but now I see. Even that's not good enough for him. So finally the guy decides to cut it off, and he says, let's just say this for now. There's no record of anybody being born blind ever healed. If this guy healed me, he must be from God. And you don't think he's trying to jerk their chain. That's exactly what he's doing. And what do they say to him? This is what they say to him. This is John 9, 34. You were born entirely in sin, and yet you lecture us. Such was their contempt for people, not of their status. They assumed they had their status because of their righteousness. Anyone below them obviously was rejected of God. So this, this group that rejects Jesus, they're the ones who reject the invitation. Because frankly, they don't think they need it. They've already got it made. Of course, that man went off and found Jesus again, and they had a conversation about who Jesus was, and Jesus concluded by saying, I come into this world for judgment in order that those who do not see will see, and those who do not see will become blind. So to the mob, the common person whose hearts were drawn by Jesus' words, these words are, these parables are marvelous news. There's hope for them. But for those who thought they were on the inside, not so good. Now for us, I think the message is equally clear. The religious elite of Jesus' time rejected the invitation. For us to be careful, we don't reject the garment. We didn't earn it. Nothing of our status or intellect or ability had anything to do with it. We're just called to a feast and offered a garment. Well, we accept it. Will we identify wholeheartedly with the host? Will we identify wholeheartedly with all the other guests, whatever they may look like, 
or smell like? It's easy to think that we do. It's easy to think that we do. Especially if we identify with the church, raised in a church, do the Christian stuff, Christmas, Easter, Thanksgiving, maybe support some church, do the good Christian stuff, which is all, of course, really good to do. We should do that. But the bottom line is, do we really wear the wedding garment? Do we embrace the one thing that not only gets us in the door legitimately, but qualifies us for every benefit? There's an extraordinary Old Testament package, passage that talks about this. Most of us are familiar with it. It's actually the way Jesus started his ministry. In Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 4, when Jesus returned from the temptations, his time in the wilderness, he went right into a synagogue and they handed him a scroll and it says he opened it up. Luke records that he opened it up to this passage. In other words, Jesus deliberately chose this passage to inaugurate his ministry. And most of you will recognize it. Jesus read this from the prophet Isaiah. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim freedom for the captives, release from the power of darkness the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Here what comes next. Jesus didn't quote this part, at least not as Luke records it. But here's what comes next. This is what also he came to do. To provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and, you know what? If you've been around a long time, you remember the old chorus. A garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Isaiah saw it. The garment of praise. In a very real, practical way, and this certainly is not the entire expression of that, but when we come in on a, on a morning, I, I will not say it is as if, no, it's more real than that. As we walk through the door, we take into our possession the garment. And it is our choice as to whether or not we would put it on, and that garment of praise, that decision to enter into the celebration of who he is, to do it focused on our God in the company of those with an equal standing to ourselves, that celebration of praise will completely eliminate, drive out, the spirit of despair or mourning as we used to sing in the old chorus. And then Isaiah goes on to say they'll be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Now, our corporate worship here on a morning is just one example of this. Every time we encounter that darkness, that despair, that discouragement, that mourning, whatever it is, we're being offered at that same instance a garment. In that exact same instance, when the darkness would overwhelm us, the Spirit of God offers us a garment. Do we put it on? And by that, do, what I mean is, do we make the deliberate choice to respond in praise? 
that response by an act of our will. I'm, I'm not the biggest fan of YouTube in the world, but there's some really good stuff on YouTube. There's some really good music on, on YouTube. I'll tell you, last night, I wasn't interested in this morning. It's been a rough week. And I was not interested in this morning. And when you're a preacher, it's kind of th- scary. When you go to bed Saturday night, and you think, oh, man, I don't want to be a fraud when I stand. I mean, I know what I'm going to say is true, but my heart's not going to be in it, and that's really, really bad. And so Pastor Joy suggested, we might want to listen to some good music. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. And so we just turned on some worship stuff. And then we entered into that worship. And I went to bed excited about this morning. Now, what changed? I mean, my emotive state changed, right? None of the truth of this, none of the truth of what we believe changed. But it was my ability to step through the junk this last week has been to get to this place where I can stand here and in, in an honest and sincere heart say, I am so glad to be here this morning. Do we understand that the one thing that gets us through the door is the same thing that got every other person through the door and that we all, by grace, stand in his presence as he has chosen us? Do we understand that we sit at his table in the same status as every other person. We used to sing, we used to sing the old, a lot of old choruses have been coming to my mind lately. We used to sing the old chorus, only by grace can we enter. Only by grace can we stand. Not through our human endeavor, but by the, Barbara's nodding, she remembers this one, yeah. yeah. By the blood of the Lamb. One last thing I'd add, and then we'll wrap up with prayer. The benefit of these social customs, the reason they developed, nobody sat down and decided to write these old customs out. Like, hey, let's come up with some rules for having dinner together. Um, no, it's they figured out this was a way, these customs of hospitality that formed the backdrop to all this, this was a way that even mortal enemies could sit down to a meal without killing one another. We could use some of that in the church. Father, I thank you that we, we come to your word this morning, and, and, and initially, Father, at least for us, we kinda, we're kind of like going, what's going on here? Because our customs just are not even close to this, Lord. And it's so easy to think. It's just our natural, I think, default to think, oh, this guy must have been shabby, and he must have been unkept, and he must have been totally, totally unprepared for the wedding. Well, Father, so was everybody else in the room. Nobody came to that door properly attired. Nobody But by the grace and the mercy, the goodness of the host, they were made ready when they came in the door. And so, Father, we thank you that that we come to you, Lord, conscious of our unreadiness, our, our, well, we're just not good enough. But you hand us, Father, a garment of praise, Lord. It's not a matter, we know, of getting our salvation back. It's a matter of walking in the salvation you've given us and choosing, Father, to focus on your goodness and who you are, Father. Father, we, re- we rejoice that we don't even have to wait for a Sunday morning to put on this garment of praise that you have offered us and extol your riches. We can do it anytime we want to, Lord. Anytime, Father, we feel that, that darkness, that depression beginning to overcome us, Lord, we can look to you in praise and know there is victory in the person of our Savior.
Help us to that end, we pray. To be wise, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand this morning and worship him.